0: This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. The University of Dallas is known for its rigorous undergraduate core curriculum, a robust graduate and professional programs in business, ministry, education, and the humanities. With campuses in Texas and Italy, the University of Dallas is committed to an education that forms students intellectually, socially, and spiritually for a life well lived. For more information, visit udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash
1: pillar. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and pillar editor in chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and pillar co founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, I have to apologize to you straight away. Um, I am uh, in Rome, where you are not. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, I had to. Um, gate check my bag, to my surprise, when I boarded a plane to Rome uh, in Chicago a couple of days ago. And so today, when I went to plug in my microphone, uh, which we have great microphones, uh, I found that mine had uh, broken. The input jack into my microphone had broken. So I'm recording this on my AirPods, and it probably sounds like I'm recording this on my AirPods as a microphone, and I want to apologize to you Ed, and to our listeners for that um, I whatever it was that happened that broke the input jack of my microphone I just I realized that the show might not sound that great and uh, and I feel terrible
0: that is a shame I mean um a good podcast well made feels like a live conversation with you know that you're in the room for and so you know that's a good phone call is a good phone call but it, it can shatter the, the, the illusion it can shatter yeah, the illusion for some people and i I, I say this you know uh, me first of all i I have podcasts I listen to, and I like to, you know, I like to pretend like I know the people um, that I'm listening to. Of course, people who listen to the show by and large aren't pretending they know us. Most of them do know us at this point. And um, and if you don't, you can consider that you do. There's no strangers (laughs) here at the Pillar Podcast. Um, So I'm sorry to hear that your microphone broke. I feel like, I mean, we do have nice, I guess, microphones that we got. We have nice microphones, yeah. They're large, though they 're large and very hefty. I feel like this is i feel like microphone technology would have advanced further than it seems to have that you could have high quality audio recording with you know minimal actual hardware uh, but there you go uh,
1: i 'm sorry you know that-, that when we started podcasting, we recorded i 'm doing something as a backup today that reminded me of when we started podcasting years ago, which is we would, we would um, FaceTime with each other on our computers and then we would record because we started podcasting effectively on a Lark. And, um, and so we would FaceTime with each other and we would each record our audio into our phones using the voice memo app on our phones, which I'm doing today just as a backup because I'm not sure about how the quality of my, my AirPod thing will work, but it, it took, took me back.
0: Oh, uh, that worked fine though, but that the, to my point. That was a that w- the, when we moved from that to using actual podcast software and real grown-up microphones and everything. Um I, I think it became a lot easier for for our producer Kate, who's wonderful and has been putting up with our nonsense for all of these years. <laughs> uh, I think her life got easier, but sound quality changed. I mean, this is probably a testament not to the quality of iPhone recordings, but the quality the quality of Kate's production skills. Um I didn't notice any marked shift in audio quality when we stopped just recording voice notes on our phones and emailing them to Kate versus when we started dialing into this website and recording. So I'm glad that you're doing that. Maybe maybe all this apologizing is, is unnecessary. We've lifted the curtain without cause because perhaps through the magic of the internets and things, Kate will just be able to make you sound as good as normal. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. Um, it's not a challenge, Kate. I mean, I, it, I I'm not. I'm not. We'll, saying see, what yeah. we'll, we'll see, see what she can do effectively. We'll see what she can do. You can't.
1: You can't work miracles. But if I you mean, if anyone get could, it's you. Water from a turnip. You can't get blood from. You a can turnip. get
0: water from a turnip.
1: You can. You can't get. I, I don't know. I, I've never. I don't know if I've spent a lot of time around turnips. But you can't get blood from a turnip. You can't get water from a stone. Interesting. <laughs> Is it a
0: Minnesotan phrase by any chance?
1: That's the first time you've ever heard the expression "you can't get blood from a turnip."
0: That is absolutely the first time I've ever heard the expression "you can't get blood from a turnip." Is it oh. again? Is it from Minnesota?
1: I think it's a ubiquitous American expression. You understand the
0: meaning—that um, you can't ask a thing to give of that which it doesn't have.
1: Co- correct. That it. That um, yes. That one can't. One can't give what one does not have, as it were. I've
0: I've heard you. I've heard what I. What I'm now wondering is. Is a portmanteau of that Why, that longer expression? I've heard you can't get blood from a stone.
1: Um, no, no, you can't get water from a stone. You, you can't you get blood can. from a stone if you,
0: if you read your book of Exodus, Mr. Flynn, you will find you can, in fact, get a lot of water from a rock if you have a good intention, and the Lord and tells you to.
1: I'm tired. I th- I feel like this is a punchy, tired podcast. You're tired and I'm tired. We're recording this podcast. I'm in Rome. You're in your home. Um, well, not quite my is, home, uh,
0: but I am near my well. I'm near my home than you are. Let's put it that way. <laughs>
1: it's it's Friday. It's noon for me. It's like six a.m. for you. We're recording this podcast at this time because you you didn't come to Rome at because you have some personal um, uh, commitments which you have now written about in the in the newsletter, the Pillar Post, which I suspect many of our listeners li- have read. But why don't you just we're supposed to be in Rome to cover the synod on synodality. I'm in Rome covering the synod on synodality. That's mainly what we're going to talk about today. But you're not here with me, and I and I, I think our listeners were expecting us. The last time we made a podcast in Rome together was for the funeral of Benedict the 16th. and the time before that was for, I suppose, the,
0: Yeah, I suppose
1: the funeral of the extraordinary form. Um, Ooh. lamentably, it was a terrible. Uh, it was a terribly difficult podcast to make because Tradiciones custodius was such a terribly, terribly difficult document to read, and we anticipated how painful it would be for, for so very many people, and um, and uh, we had a, a number of very serious kind of legal questions about Tradiciones Custodias, many of which still still linger in many ways, or which have been compounded even in certain ways. Um, but but uh, but we did that podcast um, out on the terrace of the hotel where we stay. The hotel. And I'm I'm here now, and I am not on the terrace, but I am near an open window, which is why you can hear the sounds of Bellaroma. Um But uh, but it's different to be here without you. So why why aren't you here?
0: I'm not here because I'm seeing to my personal spiritual welfare. That that is the short answer. Um, the slightly longer answer, and I won't I won't wax too lyrical about it because, as you said, most people will probably have already read the newsletter, and I talked a lot about this there. Um, a retreat that my wife and I have been hoping to make for quite some time, quite some years. In fact, uh, we were offered the chance to do it this weekend. It was incredibly last minute, short notice. And it's it was also kind of,
1: kind of, it's a retreat that you're not offered. Yeah, it's obviously gone very often.
0: Exactly. It was Seven. kind of a now or not never, but now or wait several more years kind of event. And, you know, I talked to my wife about it and, um, she was very eager to go, obviously and she she encouraged me to think about um what was more important, my job or my faith and you know in 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 every other job I've ever had, that would have been a sort of ironic comment on her part uh because you know if you're if if a job is just the thing you do to make money to um pay the rent and keep a roof over your family's head, then you know putting putting God in Employment, so to speak, your faith and your employment, the church and your job, in the in the correct order isn't really all that hard. Um, but you know, I and I wrote about this a little bit. I it took me a while to come to the conclusion that I did, in fact, the proper thing for me to do, the thing that would be best for my soul, the thing that would be best for my marriage. Um, ultimately, ultimately, the thing that would be best for my relationship with with God, which is you know what I should care most about, um, would be to go on this retreat. But it took me a minute to get there because the great thing, the great joy about what we do here at the Pillar is we work with the church. We we work with and in and around our faith every day. And I mean that's great. It's a terrific blessing. I don't have to choose between you
1: know, my
0: job. Yeah, exactly. We li- and we live it as an apostolate. And um but the thing is it and, and this is true, and it was something that actually a priest I was talking to told me, um, not yesterday uh yesterday being thursday uh the day before i guess it was wednesday when i was talking him through this and saying you know i was really on the horns about this because you know we had a lot to do in rome i there was i was really looking forward to going i had um i wasn't wasn't quite physically packed to get on the plane yet but i was certainly mentally packed i had a full slate of people that i needed to see um some of whom you know with some urgency and and what this priest uh, um said to me was you said well, the thing about an apostolate is it's fueled by the Holy Spirit, but it's it's also fueled by your personal faith that you know what you carry out an apostolate is you know what what you use to run run any apostolate is is the surplus is is the extra you have in your own spiritual life the you know the excess that God gives you that you know in the sort of um gospel metaphor of you know a full measure pressed down and running over. That you know, you need to have that. You need to make sure that your personal spiritual life is in is in order, and you are receiving much from the Holy Spirit, so that you have something to carry into the work of the apostolate. And so that was also helpful for me in in figuring out where I needed to be. Which um, this weekend is not in beautiful Rome,
1: doing all of the things that I wanted to do. <laughs> the um, only person who I, says in beautiful Rome is a person who's not in Rome to work. You know that it's it's great to be in Rome. It's great to cover the synod on synodality, but let's not confuse working Vatican Rome with, with Bella Roma. Oh no, I love it. I love, uh, you know, I've, I think we were talking about this. Rome, Rome is your USCC Like, yes. you know how I love, I, I really, really like the, um, there's a lot of things for, for us to, that I want to respond to in your, in your points, but I really, really like the plenary meetings of the USCCB because I'm a USCCB policy nerd. I have, you know, fair degree of knowledge of the various things that the usccb is working on i know many usccb staffers and it's it's just a it's a beat that i and and ambition, it's just a beat that i know well and that i get excited about it and and this beat you know i'm meeting with a lot of people who are friends of the pillar here and and um far be it from me to suggest that i'm meeting with sources um but meeting with people who are a who who, who care about the pillar in very many ways but you and, and you know i i I don't worry that the works like going to get or something like that, but you have a particular love for this beat in the same way that I tend to have a love for the, for the conference beat.
0: Yes. I'm, I am very happy working in Rome doing, doing Vatican stuff. Um, it makes sense. I mean, you know, we were talking on the show the other week, I think about, you know, my sort of, uh, my dislike of travel, as I've gotten older, that you know, I don't. I'm not a comfortable traveler. I tend to be quite anxious. I know
1: you told me how much you dislike travel, and then you suddenly had a retreat emerge, which prevented you from traveling. And don't think I didn't chuckle at that. Well, even though I'm sure I you... know you were telling me the truth. I, I, yeah. The timing was funny. Yes.
0: Um, although, I mean, what's funny is actually traveling to Rome isn't travel that makes me particularly nervous, unless I'm flying with you, and I'm worried you're going to pick a <laughs> fight with airport security or
1: something. Someone you you told someone I think on. Uh, or you said in the podcast last week that we have almost gotten arrested in the airport because of me. I have no, I have a special grace of forgetting many things, as you know, but I have no recollection of that.
0: Yeah, I know you don't have any recollection of that, uh, but it, <laughs> it it happened. Um, I mean, I can give you, I can, I can put you in the room again if you'd like, but uh, we were. Just give me a reminder. We were flying home during COVID time from Rome and there we had to get the COVID tests at the drugstore before we were allowed to go to the airport where we then had to show the COVID tests. And there were lots of places where you'd get your temperature checked as you were sort of moving towards what would normally in the ordinary run of things just be bag check before security. And they were making us walk from basically one end of the terminal. I mean, Rome it has the best airport in the world, in my mind.
1: Oh, gosh, it's the worst.
0: And, well, okay, we can talk about this later on in the show if you want, but you could be more wrong about that, Charlie Brown. Uh, but anyway, they were making us. But you have to get through security before it becomes the greatest airport in the world. And so they were making us go from sort of pillar to post, uh, showing silly paperwork and things like that. And and eventually, you just got to the point where you got quite stroppy with the uh, with the person who wanted to see your COVID test, and and you started saying, "Well, I don't, I don't want to show it to you." Like you know, you you just basically said, "I don't want to play this game anymore." It's basically where you were. Um, with our efforts to get through security and get on a plane and they said well you know you have you have to do this this is where the line is well i'm not why no i want to just go over there why can't i just go over there that's where i need to be you you started you know moving to just sort of (laughs) shove through these this you know group of little four guys who were checking things and were all it was Italy, so they were all dressed like grand admirals and you know a navy of some kind and i mean it there was a moment there where I honestly thought, "Oh, this is how we get arrested, isn't it?" I'm going to get arrested over a over a BS COVID check in Fumacino because JD's had enough standing in lines now, and you know, jumped up little functionaries telling him where to stand.
1: I had forgotten all about that.
0: Yeah, I I hadn't. I was nervous, um, but no. That having been said, and my being a nervous traveler, notwithstanding, Rome is not a place for which I am a nervous traveler. Like Rome. I I understand Rome now. Um, not necessarily. I'm not saying I have a you know, deep enculturation in the city of Rome that I understand the Roman people. Or I just mean I've been there enough times over the decades. Like I know what it's, I know that
1: we know where stuff is. I know where stuff is.
0: I know how to get out of the airport the fastest way possible. I know how to get into the middle of town the fastest way possible. I know where my hotel is. I know what room in that hotel that I like. I know the five restaurants walking distance (laughs) from the hotel that I like to eat in. I know the five restaurants that are not quite walking distance from the hotel that I would like to go to at some point. I have family in Rome. I have friends in Rome. I have old classmates in Rome. I mean, it's, I, I, I find it considerably less stressful. And I, I, so I was in, um, as you know, J.D., uh, but as other people probably don't, because why would they? Uh, I was in New York City on Saturday.
1: New York City?
0: Yeah. I, I found taking the Acela up to Manhattan for the day considerably more stressful than I find flying to Rome for a week. Just because not my city, I, not so my funny. people, I, nothing about it makes sense I love to me. being in New York. I know you do, but I don't understand how I... I, that whole city is so oppressive and angry and constructed. As though- That's so funny
1: because what I really love is old New York. The, the, the current Disneyland New York. Well, what I mean Disneyland old New York is defined. New
0: York. It's only, the city was only founded five minutes ago. <laughs> I old
1: mean, you New York is like understand. saying, "Well, I like the
0: I like the old McDonald's on the other side of town."
1: You don't understand what pre Giuliani New York was like, and actually, New York is increasingly oh, more. And I more disagree. Like this New is actually—I but- was about to say—I
0: I, one of the things that occurred to me on my way back is I was like, man, I know that everyone says New York. The thing about New York is it's just like the movies, but I never get like sassy '90s rom-com New York. I get like Bad Lieutenant New York. Like, it, you know, it's always a a you know sinister Brian De Palma movie you know, where everyone's angry and has questionable facial hair and it's raining and people seem to all be taking drugs in the street. And I, I, well, and it was made worse this time because when I got to Penn station, which is constructed as though to confuse an invading army, like it is impossible to get in and out of that place and have any concept of where you are, or where you're going or, I mean, that place is built. I mean, the whole city is designed as though it were allergic to the people living in it, which is, is a whole other thing. But, but, so I was trying to find my way to the surface at Penn Station and I kept looking at and thinking wow I mean I have I'm prone to exaggeration sometimes and I have a low opinion of New York City to start with but I mean these people are freaks these every single one of these people is some sort of disordered moral degenerate who I just really shouldn't be allowed <laughs> out no no hear me you out hear me guy. I'm going somewhere with this And it was only as I sort of got close to the top, because Penn Station is sort of under, alongside, under and alongside Madison Square Garden, that I realized there was apparently some kind of Comic-Con going on there. So all (laughs) of the people that I was like, wow, even by my own very, very like basement level standards of New York, you people are, you've totally gone over the deep end. Half of you look like you're going to a fetish concert. The other half of you are dressed to rob a bank. And it's like, no, that's actually what they were trying to go for they were all doing the doing the comic-con thing so um no i this is too much banter i'm sure people are going to start complaining in a minute but
1: this is not banter this is substantive
0: conversation is it okay uh that day was far more uncomfortable for me than would have been flying to rome and just getting in the uber at the special semi-secret because you know italians have a tortured relationship with uber um semi-secret pickup place take me to you the hotel just take a
1: cat. i just take. A, i i what i like to do is take the train from fiumicino but the last few times that i've taken the train from fiumicino you've told me that we don't need to take the train and i am a grown-up and it's okay to take a taxi and all this other stuff so i've taken a taxi but the taxi so easy just stand in line but the train, I, I I like to be. I'm a Scottish skinflint when it comes to not spending money, so I like to take the train. You're not actually saving, saving all that money, much money you
0: know? taking the train, though, because our hotel's on the other side of the city from Termini, so you're still going to have to get a cab.
1: No. Yeah. You have never taken the subway from Termini to the San Pietro station? No. I'm not a, <laughs> Why not? I'm not a peasant. 8K, I don't yeah. use. I'm not. <laughs> we're not kings either the subway is the ordinary mode of transportation. no but i mean you know we're not fine.
0: i did, we're not i drink bottled water drinks. from time to time too i you know th- you don't have to drink out of it. A- <laughs> why
1: there's water fountains all over the city oh my there's, god
0: there's water fountains all over the don't city don't do They're that don't don't the pipes coming out you're of buildings you're drinking They're out of the trevi fountain
1: too to save money What's no not the trevi fountain but just you know those running water fountains those pipe those pipe fountains
0: you don't drink out of
1: those <laughs> Of course I do. I want to be a good steward of, uh, of the resources of the pillar. Like, you know, Okay. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. I'm just trying to be responsible here.
0: Okay. Uh, You know what?
1: Okay. That's fine. Well, here's what I want to talk about this. Um, I mean, in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about the Synodon citadelity, and we are actually fast approaching the second half of the show, but we're not there yet. And uh, I want to talk about this thing, which you raised, which is that you are, um, you're going on a retreat because you want to care for your spiritual life and that, you know, caring for your spiritual life, which is important. I think everyone is kind of intrigued by what this mystery retreat is, but we'll, we'll leave that for now.
0: Oh, we're leaving that. Um, I'm allowed to have, listen, if you're curious, I'm allowed to have some things that are just for me in my life. All right. And my, <laughs> my personal spiritual life and formations. just, that's for me. I'm allowed to
1: have that. Yeah. And, and, uh, Ed doesn't want everybody to know that what he and his wife are actually going to is not exactly a retreat per se. It's um, it's a, it's it's a it's a sort of here in Rome there are several shadow synods taking place alongside the the synod on synodality. There are sort of, you know, the kind of root and branch synods, uh, the uh, synod unbound, these kinds of things where people whose views are not um, sufficiently <laughs> believe it or not. People whose views are not sufficiently orthodox to merit their inclusion. People who are so far out there,
0: out they are, are beyond the down.
1: peripheries. <laughs> right. And Ed, you know, Ed does not want um, people to realize that what he's doing is he and his wife have, have some things to say in a shadow synod this weekend. That's so right. That's, that's what I'm actually doing. And it's not just this weekend, right? I mean, so it's not just this weekend because if it were, you'd maybe come to Rome on Monday. Oh, if it was just this for the weekend, no. Thing it's going to no, continue.
0: Yeah, the 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 three day retreat begin you know, is the is the sort of big kickoff and then there's, you know, successive nights of of catechesis, biblical scrutiny confession, you know, it's it's a whole thing for
1: about um two or three weeks afterwards. And I mean like connected i connected to this kind of couples and family group that you're a part of. Yeah. 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 Okay. So what I want to talk it's about not is this Freemasonry. So so you raised this point. Boy, I have heard, uh, we're coming back to what I wanted to talk about, but I have heard from more Italians in the past few days, the genuine suspicion that Pope Francis is a Freemason than I ever hear in America. Like I hear lots of criticism in America of Pope Francis, don't get me wrong. And I hear That's criticism not that an unreasonable. Part of Davos and things like that. But in, in Italy, the, like they call him, uh, Papa. Mes- or, you know, critics of the Pope. And these are masculine people. I mean, you wouldn't really expect it, but Papa Masonico. Uh, and uh, um, there's a real suspicion among a lot of people that Francesco, uh, the first peace be upon him, is in fact um, a Freemason. And, and I think in America, we lack that as a kind of um, touchstone point of conspiracy suspicion. And we just don't have we don't have an imagination for how Freemasonry might figure into our sort of one world government imaginations uh, or, or machinations. And, uh, and, and so it's far less likely that you'll hear Francesco as a Freemason. In the united states but here i i mean you know uh, lots of people have told me this
0: you you're you're betraying your your narrow parochial formation um in, in saying that the reason that we lack the imagination in the united states to conceive of the freemasons as a cultural touchstone for uh sort of you know um the people who are really in power the the sort of sinister monsters on the bed is because the freemasons won over here jd our country was founded by a gang of Masonic yeah. perverts. So, you know, to sort of say, Oh, I bet, you know, the sort of analog of an Italian saying, Oh, I bet the prime minister is a Freemason or I bet the Pope is a Freemason. I mean, if you said that over here, it's like, well, of course he probably is, a, you know, a, a fairly sizable percentage of our presidents have been Freemasons. Right. You know, it's, it's not so much that, you know, we don't, we lack the, the thought of, we lack a thought for Freemasonry in this country. It's like, that's, That's a good thing. Like the George Washington Monument is a gigantic Masonic middle finger to Catholic culture built right in the middle of our nation's capital. Um, So there's all of that. I mean, the the worldview of Masonry is still primarily formed by Catholic history and culture. And so in Catholic history and culture to sort of default to this guy doesn't smell right. I know I'm not saying this about Pope Francis. I'm just saying as the sort of general default to oh the i bet he's a mason uh is to say oh that person seems to be operating in such a way that the only plausible explanation is they're trying to sabotage the thing they're leading and in many parts of the world thankfully catholic culture is still deeply enough ingrained that uh you know the the masons whose you know primary founding ethos was to sabotage the catholic church and culture particularly in places like italy and and spain and therefore latin america um you know, remains remains the sort of default setting. It's like you know, well, you know, well, of course, if it if they're bad, it must be the Masons, because why? Well, because the Masons were anti Catholic, and and that makes total sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, on
0: the yeah. subject of Pope Francis being a Freemason, I I I don't think there's any question that Pope Francis is not a Freemason. Um, if for no other reason, then uh, he's he's actually said some. Na- he 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 um, oh. being also a man of his of his country, informed by his own cultural understandings. When he first arrived in Rome, he would he would frequently make reference to the Masonic lobby in the Vatican, um, sometimes in earnest and sometimes as a sort of you know example of you know well there's yeah you know there's always problems you know there's the Masonic lobby in the Vatican. <laughs> and yeah. So I mean Pope Francis is you know if if Pope Francis were a Freemason he wouldn't have come out of the gate you know by sort of acknowledging you know there's there's a Masonic problem in Rome. And the other thing is you know you have to bear in mind in Italy they're conditioned by their own history and. You know, the P2 scandal still looms very, very large in the cultural consciousness, and rightly so. Um, are are you familiar with the P2? No. The broad-corn no. Oh, I well, – I, no, it was
1: kind of a We're big – We're pretty t- far down a diversionary, a diversionary area right now, which is why I didn't actually ask you when you dangled that hook in front of me, hoping that I would ask no, you I about thought, the P2 I, scandal.
0: I, 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 I never know with um, how much of this stuff Bologna. people are aware.
1: Bologna. No. You 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 heard an invitation to. Go, I was giving you a throwaway comment. You heard an invitation to go down a rabbit hole, and now you're begging me to let you go deeper into the rabbit hole. Oh no, hole. we're go we're
0: going. Whether I just didn't want to tell you things you already knew. Um, we're going so down the rabbit hole. You brought up today. Freemasonry.
1: No, I didn't. I, you did. I made one little comment. I did not bring up faith Freemasonry. I said I'm. I'm said I'm surprised. We're going to go to the take Pope Francis is a Freemason. And what you said is. I said, I'm surprised by the number of people who say that. We don't really have an imagination for that in America. And what you said is, well, J.D., what you don't realize is why we don't have an imagination for that in America. First of all, I don't know why you would assume that. It's, it, was, it, was, it was hugely presumptuous on your part to assume that I didn't know why just because I said this is a reality. But second of all, now we're going deep down the rabbit hole. And you're and that that dangle of uh, – you, you are familiar with the P2 scandal, aren't you – was the most sort of naked – Uh, Request for permission to go further down than I've ever heard. So please, Ed. What is the P2 scandal? Tell us more about your dissertation.
0: Well, all right, fine. Um, (laughs) The P2 scandal... (laughs) The thing you have to understand about Freemasonry is it's... it's, The thing you have to understand about Freemasonry in Italy particularly is it's informed by its unique history.
1: (laughs) What do I need to understand about Freemasonry in
0: particular in Italy? Well, do you... You keep laughing. There are people right now listening to this show who are on the edge of their seats going, Yes, finally, we are getting the conversation we've always wanted. I was worried they're going to talk about that boring synod. No, they're going to talk about Freemasonry. Let's do it.
1: (laughs) We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. And this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to us by the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. And, you know, the University of Dallas, you mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but I think it's important to talk about, is known for its rigorous undergraduate core curriculum. What that means, basically, is that all University of Dallas undergraduate students are required to take the same rigorous core curriculum, which consists of 20-plus courses across disciplines. They take four courses in literature, four in history, three in philosophy, two in theology, two laboratory science classes one each in economics, politics, fine arts, and mathematics, plus they gain intermediate knowledge of a foreign language. In short, the UD core curriculum is not sort of a couple of classes that are checked off, but a whole sort of foundation of education with a Christian worldview across a variety of disciplines, all of which aim to sort of ask fundamental and clear and important questions about who we are, where we came from, and where we're going from a deeply Catholic perspective. Um, And from my perspective, this core curriculum is a really cool thing that distinguishes the University of Dallas from, from even other many other Catholic universities.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the thing I find fascinating about the, the University of Dallas' core curriculum is it's so much better than the college education I got at undergraduate. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not saying those. these, and I went to another Catholic liberal arts college. I didn't. I was educated in another country, in another context entirely, where you specialize much more. Um, much more early on in your in your academic life and I I feel the lack of it I mean that to have I mean this is like you said this isn't a box ticking exercise of a core curriculum it's like you know foreign literature foreign history three in philosophy two in theology two lab sciences economics politics fine arts math
1: like Homer Faulkner Thucydides Marx Plato Heidegger yeah I mean this is the western I mean just across across western
0: history this is i mean but the, you know when we talk about a liberal arts education like this is what it is like to to have a familiarity with and an understanding of the entire academic spectrum so that you have a basis on which to build and to understand and to pursue studies further i think it's just i i think it's so cool and then when you you take into account that they you know um you know f- was it four or five of their courses are offered on on the rome campus you know that's that's nice Mm -hmm. as is the
1: theme of the show i would like to be in rome um (laughs) the ud rome campus strikes me as being one of the most sort of comprehensive um study abroad programs among catholic colleges and universities i constantly am hearing alumni say how transformational it was in their life and to your point about the liberal arts like i think about this with my kids all the time with the way that that they're being formed like we are uh, not only like heirs of this incredible tradition of Western history, but like almost stewards of it. Like there's ev- everything about the way that we think and the way that we live, or so many things about the way that we think and the way that we live and the way that we experience the world are built upon just a, a long conversation, spanning centuries full of really great ideas expressed in great art, expressed beautifully expressed in great literature. The the great books, so to speak, you know, are not just sort of important. They're great, right? They're, they're right. really these are the things which um, upon which so much of who we are is built and which speak and resonate to to our, our souls in really meaningful ways. And so the, the, the notion of a core curriculum, which is like not just a, a passing sort of tour through those things, but in a, like a, a deep study of the foundations of those things, um, uh, the foundations of that tradition, of those conversations, of that great beauty. Uh, it's it's, I think, really an incredible gift. I, I I'm excited about this because I think it's the sort of thing that can be impactful not only for um, a student, but for like the renewal of culture.
0: Yeah. And I I mean, I, I fully love the idea that um, the function of education and especially higher education, isn't to just produce a sort of uh, series of casts of experts in different fields that even people who, you know, if you, if you're, if you know you're going to be a doctor and you want to do, you know, medical school and everything else. That's great, but you shouldn't just study organic chemistry at undergrad, right? To have, you know, to have your brain stimulated and come out with another way with, you know, a, a class on fine art is, you know, that's important, not just to developing a rounded person, but it actually helps you learn and develop in the discipline that you do want to make your focus and everything, you know, to, to work the other parts of your brain. You know, if you're a literature student, having to take a math class, it, it it's about, exercising the whole of the human person the whole of the human intellect i just it's so good and i say this because you know like i said my own my own undergraduate um career lacked this and i felt the imbalance at times so i you know i i as usual when we end up talking about the university of dallas it is with wistful envy that i find myself considering (laughs) the prospect of being a student there um but hey ho they are great and i am glad that they're 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 friends of the show
1: So UD is the only member of the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, which requires students to finish coursework in composition, literature, foreign languages, government or history, economics, mathematics, and science. UD students have to study math and fine arts, and they have to take a lab course in both the biological and physical sciences. The UD core curriculum is broad, comprehensive, and I I would say, and I I mean this, important. If you want to see a video about it, if you want to learn more about it, if you want UD to know that you like this ad. Uh, check all this out at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. We can learn about the core curriculum at the University of Dallas, check out a video about it, and let the University of Dallas know that you uh, you heard about you heard about it at the Pillar. Yes, please do. udallas.edu slash pillar. Welcome back to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation. I'm your host, JD Flynn, and I was about to learn when we uh, had to cut the commercial, I was about to learn about the P nine scandal, or something like that. And what is the P nine scandal, and why is it important? I
0: can I can hear your sarcasm, JD. <laughs> it has been noted. But I I just want <laughs> while you continue this frankly undignified laughter, um, you need to just remember that everyone else who's listening to the show is with me, and they want to talk about this. And you're well, laughing that, that not at me, so. you're laughing at
1: them. That may be so. <laughs> And what is the P9 scandal, and why is it important? We're going to talk about this for five more minutes. You know, it's no more
0: future. convincing when you deliberately misname something that you don't want to talk about.
1: I'm, I'm not, actually. I'm not. The if P I get it wrong... The P2 scandal. The P2 scandal, I'm sorry.
0: Propaganda Due. Um, uh, anyway, no, so the reason it's called P2 is there was a Masonic Lodge called P2 that was discovered in Italy. And when I say there was a Masonic Lodge called P2 and it was discovered in Italy that actually... It's one of those sentences that needs to be unpacked a little bit to fully understand its import. First of all, um, why was it called P2 and why was it, quote unquote, discovered in Italy? These both um, link back to the same thing, which is actually World War II. Freemasonry was uh, suppressed and abolished in Italy uh, for a, a long period of time, including under the, the fascist government of Benito Mussolini, and it was brought back to Italy by the U.S. Army during its uh, invasion of and liberation of the Italian Peninsula during the Second World War. And when Freemasonry was being reestablished, it had previously been established in Italy under the, um, you know, when before Italy was Italy, before the Risorgimento, and it was primarily a vehicle of terrorists, terrorist cells called the Carbonari, who were sort of uh, in post, in, uh, you know, the, this Enlightenment-era uh, anti-church saboteurs and things. But anyway, so when it was re-established when Freemasonry was reestablished in Italy following the Second World War, they renamed all of the lodges and numbered them instead you know, from the year dot you know, for the repropagation of Freemasonry in Italy following the war. and so propaganda do was the second lodge. And um, I, it was discovered because actually it's it was and remains in Italian law that if you are a member of a Masonic fraternity or similar organization, you are required. That organization was required to deposit its membership rolls with the state um, because secret societies can be corrosive and corruptive. and It's one of the many reasons the church has always condemned them. So um, P2 was a scandal in which the Masonic Lodge was discovered that had a lot of people on it that were involved in the Italian senior brass in the Italian military, intelligence services, all levels of government. Um, a junior member, this was in the late 70s, I believe that it was found. Uh, late 70s, early 80s. And it had a young businessman on the rolls named Silvio Berlusconi. There was the name of a monsignor who grew up to become a cardinal, cardinal of the dicastery that you and I hold dearly. I will refrain from naming them because you can't say for absolute certain that just because his name was on this membership role, you know, it, it means anything could be fake. I don't know. I can't establish it, so I'm not going to blacken his name. Um, But the, all of this is to say that you know, there is a reason why there is the the sort of whiff of Freemasonry as the default position for um accusing someone of secret uh ulterior motives to sabotage the institution of which they are a member. That it's a, it's a live part of the cultural milieu. It's also a live part of Italian politics. Like, you know, having having senior judges, politicians, generals that be secretly members of Masonic lodges Engaged in acts of you know coordinated corruption and you know mutual assistance or whatever, like that that's a real thing that's happened in Italy. It's a real thing that's happened in Italy fairly recently. so that's why there is this culture of that. I, I mean again, I don't think Pope Francis is a Freemason. Um, I think you can you can have all sorts of worries and concerns uh, about some some of what has become I, I think it's safe to say will be his legacy as Pope, and at the same time recognize that he's not a Freemason. Um, so that's propaganda to do it, J.D. Cool, 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 cool. That's neat. What you really need to do, though, is you need to understand how this has changed Freemasonry in Italy, this sort of breach over World War II, because there used to be a very interesting cultural divide between what we'd call continental or oriental Freemasonry. Uh, which is Freemasonry on the continent of Europe versus sort of Anglo Freemasonry. Which would be, I see you gesturing to me that I've overstayed my allotted time on Freemasonry, but this is important and the people want to know. Um, but it, it's it's interesting because uh, Freemasonry was reintroduced into uh, the Uni- into Italy and and to Germany, in fact, um, post war by the United States. So there's been this sort of blending of Masonic cultures, and it, it's fascinating how that's all shaken out. But anyway, I'll stop now. We should talk about. Moving from Masonic lodges, JD, to other secret meetings, let's talk about the Synod before we talk about the secret
1: meeting. This is what I didn't want to miss, though, because before we talk about the secret meeting, I wanted to talk about something that you raised. Uh, we might still be in the banter. <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk about something that you raised that I think is a genuine issue in the life of the church that goes unappreciated, um, and it's this: you you mentioned that you're you're not coming to Rome because you're going on this retreat followed by this catechetical time and these scrutinies and, and these sorts of things that your small faith community is a part of. Um,
0: Ongoing formation in the faith is a right and duty for all Christians, and it is in the code.
1: Indeed, I, I agree. But we know that there is a problem that that is a little bit hard to quantify, but that exists, which is that an increasing number of um, of younger priests are finding themselves out of ministry relatively quicker, quicker than you might think, suffering The effects of something that might look like depression or burnout or something like that, and at the same time that a great many kind of um, lay people who work in the life of the church struggle, even if they sort of don't burn out or even if they don't sort of lose their faith, just struggle with the weight of their apostolic work. That apostolate, apostolic work, whether uh, undertaken by ordained or lay or, or ordained people or lay people, by clerics or lay people can i i i know this is true because i've done both apostolic work and non-apostolic work um sort of for a profession can have a kind of weight that comes i think with the spiritual significance of it and that comes with the kind of even sort of both spiritual and psychological challenges of doing ministry um in addition to the just often long hours and high expectations and and uh and oftentimes low sort of feedback positive feedback of, of for one's work or the sense that one is. or or a relatively diminished sense of sort of accomplishment that one has begun something and then accomplished it. And, um, and I think too often, many people in the church give lip service to the idea that Catholics who are engaged in sort of full-time apostolic work or ministry need to take time for their own spiritual life, but without sort of giving sufficient space for that, I'm struck often by the fact that, um, it's rare, but it probably shouldn't be uncommon that, people who work in the life of the church not only are given a time for a retreat annually, but are sort of expected to take it or mandated to take it that people who work in the life of the church. Now you can't have your employer or yeah, you can't have your employer sort of saying you must have a spiritual director and tell us uh, who you, who it is that violates the internal forum, but encouragement for um, a spiritual life, encouragement for um, a prayer life, encouragement, honestly for mental health care too. Like I think it's rare that, people who work in apostolic work have probably the kind of health insurance that makes it easy for them to like see a counselor and stuff like that when they need to. But there's a real psychological toll that goes in a lot of sort of frontline, especially apostolic work. And I think the reason I bring that up is because I think in a certain way you're um, evidencing something which should become more commonplace, which is just, yeah, a prioritization of the interior life at, at, for its own sake and as a means for continuity in in apostolic work. And I think for a lot of our listeners, like, A lot of our listeners who are clerics and and lay people, too, I think probably are not taking their retreat um, or doing other things that would be good for them. And maybe are feeling something which you and I both felt in ministry context in various ways, which is strung out on kind of ministry context and uh, and spread thinner and thinner, unraveled, if you will. And um, many of our listeners who are perhaps like supervisors or employers, pastors or bishops or something like that. Uh, don't always remember to be encouraging or even expecting of their employees taking that, that kind of time and doing that kind of thing. But it seems to me fundamentally necessary that that become perceived as a real priority. I, everyone who works in the church, every layperson who works in the church knows that it's not uncommon to get a call from your pastor or bishop or whatever at like, or text from your pastor or bishop or whatever at like 10:30 at night that says, you know, Hey, can you take a call? Or from someone who's in, and, and everyone who's in, who's every ordained, every cleric knows that it's not uncommon at 10:30 or 11 or 12 or 1 for someone to say, "Hey, I'm in a crisis. Can you take a call?" And uh, and, the, and those things all add up. And so I'm just I'm glad that you're making this time for this retreat because it's an opportunity to say, I think even many of the personnel problems, the crises that we look at with regard to financial misconduct, um, sexual misconduct, personal misconduct, all of them many of them stem from a person who has over time lost their interior life or who has not had adequate space or adequately prioritized their own both spiritual and mental health. So I I just think, um, I don't think we can overstate how important that is in apostolic work.
0: No, I would absolutely agree with that. And it's true. I mean, at at, at the sort of practical level that you mentioned, you know, you and I got past the, hey, I know it's late, but could you um <laughs> face uh, we 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 dropped that I'm nicety sorry. no it's i'm as bad as
1: you it's just no you're not as bad as i am i often think that i am no i i I bother, I bother you at night more than you bother me at well night.
0: that's because i'm two hours ahead of you and so while i'm bothering you at night it's just it doesn't feel like i'm bothering you at night because for you it's like oh it's it's only six o'clock i'm still kind of at my desk whereas i'm like it's 8 30 and i'm you know furiously texting behind my wife's back going, hey, well, what about this? We should do, you know, no, I, I do the same thing. And also I'd bother you in the morning more. Like, you know, it, I That's I
1: true.
0: I try very, very hard. And by try very, very hard, what I mean is I don't at all. Um, to leave you alone <laughs> until what I consider to be a respectable hour for you to be at your desk and ready and engaged the day, which I have talked myself into as being 8.30 your time, which is insane because,
1: that's funny because I try very hard not to bother you until nine o'clock your time in the mor- your time in the morning.
0: Right, exactly. Whereas, in th- the reality is, both of us are on our phones at our you know desks, metaphorically speaking, hours before that. So yeah. you know, again, recognizing the the reality of, of real spiritual burnout and everything else that can happen, like you know that I, I'm I, I'm I was getting a little twitchy. I, I can admit that, having been helped to see that by my wife, I was getting a little twitchy. I could, I could use a little spiritual recharge. Um, but the other thing is, you know, also for me, and I, I mentioned this in the newsletter. I don't know if I said it clearly enough because, I, I don't. Self-disclosure makes me feel icky. Um, and you know, we're coming dangerously close to feelings talk and. Mm-hmm. Uh, But, I mean, it is a reality that, you know, much of what we do at The Pillar involves covering the the reality of the life of the church, and that means covering scandal and corruption and things like that, where it happens, and it can mean the painful, always horrific reality of, you know, abuse scandals and things, um, which, you know, even if we're not right there working directly with a a victim survivor or something like that, and often we are, um, but even just covering something like the Rubnik scandal for example if you're really having to wallow in it and you know read the read the testimony of uh, of his victims and, and and things like that it it takes a toll but also just you know the, the sort of veniality of financial corruption things like that like if this is your if this is something you spend hours and hours a day doing um it it colors your perception of the church in the end and so it's necessary for me to step back periodically and say wait a minute am, am I engaging with the church first and foremost as a son and a sinner seeking salvation or have I become sort of cynical and hardened and, you know, I'm looking at this all very much through the lens of, you know, the church is, you know, it's like covering a government or, you know, a, a company or whatever else. And You can't let that happen because then if your primary point of contact with the church isn't sacramental, then you're doing it wrong. And so I just, I also need to make sure that that, that is true for me, um, and, and so, I'm grateful that i'm I'm getting to do that this this weekend. i I know I need it.
1: Uh, yeah, and i would I, I would just say that there's a an important lesson there for our listeners and an important reminder for all of us. Okay, um, we need to talk about the Synod on and it is perhaps appropriate that on the episode in which I thought it would be dedicated to the Synod on we have been talking about. A great many things. But none of them because, involving uh, the
0: Synod and Synodality, much like what's going on at the Synod and Synodality, funny enough.
1: Well, I, I am here at the Synod and Synodality, and, um, and I think that is the big thing that's happening in the life of the Church right now. Um, and I'm trying to assess the zeitgeist of the thing, and um, you know, the the way the Synod is structured is that um, there are some 400 and 50-ish participants, 360-ish of whom are voting participants, and the rest of whom are people who are invited to be a part of the conversations at the Synod, but are not actually voting members of the Synod. And of the 360 voting members, roughly 25% of them, a little less than 25% of them are not bishops. The rest, the other 76 or 77% of them are bishops. Well, um, so what's happening each day is that these um, participants are sitting in Table groups, small groups, um, each table holding, I think about about ten people, and um, and discussing circuli various parts, minore. circuli minori, little circles, and discussing elements of a kind of guide document called the Instrumental Laboris, the working document of the synod, which sort of takes them through seemingly what was talked about at the continental phases of the synodon synodality, the national phases of the synodon synodality, the diocesan phases of the synodon synodality, and the pair of phases of the synodality and, and answering some sort of questions about that, which are then presented in the owl in the hall as kind of little reports from each small, like, you know, when you do group work in school and then each group has to stand up and say what their conclusions were or whatever. It's, it's like that. You elect and a group secretary,
0: all of that fun stuff. Right.
1: All of that. And then people have the opportunity then to respond to what's said. And so there's time for open interventions and, and all of this is close to the media um, and close to the public, which is, um, is what it is. It's a little bit different from, prior synods, because in prior synods, um, people who participated were allowed to publish copies of their speeches, and as we know, the Vatican itself was publishing the various reports filed by the circular minority, the the, the working group's little circles, and and all of this is supposed to be kept much more confidential, and to some extent, that's true, and to some extent, like anything in the church, you know, people talk to each other. Confidential is a Um,
0: relative concept. Yeah.
1: But each day, there's a ton of international interest in this. Why? Why is there a ton of international interest in this? One, because the whole world participated in it. And so it's something that sort of began at a local level and that has been touted as an initiative of the whole church um, and uh, um, touted as sort of an expression of the of the, the, the life of the whole church. Um, and so that's one reason. But the other reason is because lots and lots of people leading up to the synod on synodality have said, you know, this will be a time, this will be the most important ecclesial event since Vatican II. And this will be a time to talk about serious questions related to the development of doctrine regarding not only ecclesiastical structures, but also moral issues in the life of the church and, um, and, and just moral theology on the whole related to sexuality, related to roles of, people, of gender, these kinds of things. So there's a ton of anxiety because um, so many people have claimed, laid claims to what the synod on synodality is about. And so each day there's a press conference in which a few participants, bishops, lay people, um, priests – our religious sisters, I suppose. Although I haven't seen any religious sisters, are, are brought to the um, to the press hall. There's a new press hall, by the way. The Salzburg is done, under renovation, so they're using it, a room, a building down the street. Um, but they're brought to the to the press hall, and then um, they give a little talk about what they experienced. And most of them say, you know, this has been great. And most of them say this hasn't been about, for the most part, doctrinal development um, or doctrinal change. There are clearly people giving speeches about doctrinal change. There are clearly people giving speeches, urging doctrinal fidelity, um, but the, the the participants say that hasn't been the whole of it. We've mostly been talking sort of about how the church can be a place that's more welcoming, how the church can be a place in which more people are heard, in which more people are consulted, what the pastoral experience of that is in different places, and I think those things are good. I, I suspect you do too. Um, but they they all evince this experience of that's kind of like. Um, the kind of collegiality that's born out of one of these things. It's like, you ever go to a cast party for a play that you're not in, that you weren't in?
0: Yes. In fact, I went to a cast party for a play that I wasn't in on the opening night of a, or a, uh, uh, the end of a opening night for a play at a recently renovated theater, which is the source of my only
1: Kevin Spacey story. And it was probably a strange experience. We're not
0: going down that rabbit hole. Bonus episode, maybe.
1: Maybe. It's kind of a strange experience to be at a cast party of a play that you're not in because the cast having all done this thing that is high stress and low sleep and lots of time together forms this sort of very c- clear bond of affection for one another. And they say like, we're, we're a family here and we love each other and we'll be friends forever and all of that. And if you're in it, it's like, that feels very natural. And if you're outside of it, it's like, boy, these people are really ramped up on the, this right now. These people have these have something of a retreat high here. Yes. Uh, or if you hear teens, you ever have this experience? A group of teens from your parish goes on a retreat, and when they come back, the parents come to pick them up. And first, parents are supposed to come and listen to them, give talks about how the retreat was. Have you ever had that experience? Uh actually, World Youth Day is the thing that comes to mind most. World Youth Day is a kind of thing like that, and and you hear this kind of uh, enthusiasm and emotional experience that is, to some degree, coupled with a relatively la- relative lack of sleep. To some degree, sort of kins with the inside jokes of a group that has become very affectionate towards one another. All of which is good. Is fine. But if you're from the outside, you're like, I wonder about the lastingness of this and all of that because I can see that these people have had this intense emotional experience that other people haven't had. And then they try and convey it and they say, there's really no way that we could possibly convey it. You just have to experience it. You just have to go.
0: Which is ironic because we're that, not allowed
1: to experience it, right? All of that is resonant to me of the way that people are talking about the sin and un-synodality. You just have to know that, the, that 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 God is present. You just have to know that there, there's no there's no real division here. People have differences of opinions, but we're very close. And I believe them. I believe that they're having this positive, emotionally charged, spiritual even experience that for them has made the church more manifest. But it's interesting to watch it from the outside because you wonder the church has sort of said this is meant to be a model and something which to which the whole of the church is invited. Um, and yet we really can't see it, right? We really can't. All we can know is that they're doing it. And we could be happy for them even that they're doing it um, or glad that they're having this experience, this positive experience. You know, when they say it's definitely the Holy Spirit that's speaking to us, you sort of think, well, may, maybe it is, you know, but you, you're not going to get in their face and say, how do you know? Although there have been certainly reporters who are doing that. But, but the whole thing is, A positive experience, it seems to me to be this positive experience for a few, coupled with certainly people who are advancing an agenda, and for most people, there's this kind of opacity to it where, yeah, this thing is happening, and they say that it's going good. And you can talk to people who who say that it's not going good, and you can talk to people who say, you know, we're not being heard, and and people have complaints about the way the microphone system works, and the queuing system works, and all of that, but there's not a lot of, to be honest there does not seem to be emerging from the synod on synodality much there, there either for the positive or, you know, people have had so many anxieties that this will be a, you know, a, a major revision to doctrine and all that. That doesn't seem to be much substance there in that direction either. The, the, it'll be interesting to see. And we've seen the first round of working group documents, which again, evince sort of we're all having a positive experience, but did not evince a ton of sort of theological depth or argumentation in one direction or another. It'll be interesting to see the extent to which the, the document produced by this thing reflects something which seems to be a positive experience of being together, but not a lot of substantive theological reflection or practical and pastoral reflection on what can come out of this, other than the fact that I think some bishops who have this experience will come out of it and say, yeah, we should do kind of things like this in our, in our diocese. That's sort of, as I look at it, that seems to be as much as I expect out of
0: it. Wouldn't that be the purest... Possible result, and the thing closest in line with what Pope Francis has actually said he wants this to produce. Like, if the thing that comes out of this is everyone who attends it says, That was really a wonderful, powerful experience of communion for the people who participated. You know, this is supposed to be a synod on synodality, and we experienced synodality. And synodality is, you know, a, a term that you can write a several thousand word treatise on if you're in the International Theological Commission at the DDF, or it can be something that, you know, you means different things to different people depending on who you ask, if they're on a press podium, but fundamentally synodality, um, as opposed to what a synod is legally, but the experience of synodality is exactly that. It's experiential. And if what comes out of this is everyone says, well, it was a really good experience and we should experience it more and we should, you know, diocesan it should become more the norm rather than the exception, then that would be... Wouldn't that be a, a good result?
1: Yes. Except I have said all along that synodality seems to me to be prayerful discernment of the will of God. And I do believe that this is prayerful, but I, I don't know if this is prayerful discernment of the will of God or or a positive experience of effective collegiality in a religiously charged environment. But,
0: but uh, I, I, again... Um, a synod properly speaking in the Western tradition, not speaking of Eastern synods, because as one of the outside um, invited guests observed to them from an Eastern Orthodox church, this ain't a synod by any definition that we recognize. Um, But the Western experience of synodality, I mean, isn't it exactly that? Like a synod is not meant to be a deliberative body. It's not meant to come up with an idea or an argument or a proposal or a development in a concrete way. its And you know what, this, this is something that... um. I, I noticed uh, Bishop Daniel Flores um, from Texas, who's obviously attending the synod and was on the the press panel yesterday, I believe, you know, said, th- this is, you know, this is, a, he, somebody asked him, you know, is, are you being manipulated by a liberal cabal or something like that? Like he was put almost yeah, it in those terms.
1: Father he, Tom Reese, who, who in my observation has slept through at least once in a press conference and, and admitted as much to me, said, uh, uh, Bishop, uh, a lot of Americans think that this whole thing is being jury-rigged by a liberal cabal. Are, are you being manipulated by a liberal cabal? It was a funny, funny question because, of course, along, people just would, come right out and say it. Cabal um, wouldn't right, exactly. Uh,
0: but no, uh, what what Bishop Flores said that was edifying and instructive, I think, is he said, listen, you know, this is all taking place. Under Peter, it's you know uh, under the care, the protection of Peter, and that's what guarantees and that's what a synod is properly speaking. Is it's a thing that meets under the authority and guidance of a proper authority in the church, a bishop. In this case, the bishop of Rome, and I, I think having you know you can have this sort of experiential thing called a synod. You can have. You know the synod functioning as what I would argue this one is, which is you know a, a sort of papal a papal invitee only think tank or focus group, and there's nothing wrong with that because you know the only thing that can come out of this substantively can come out of it from the one who convenes it that the synodal documents will say whatever it is they're going to say. I you know the the lesson of recent history. Um, of the last several synods under Pope Francis, which have had all of this extraordinary hype around them and, uh, you know, have always been accompanied with a sort of, you know, well, they're going to push for a doctrinal change. You know, the Synod on the Amazon was going to be all about ordination of women and then wasn't. They, they did push for that. They did push for no, it, I mean, but it didn't happen. That's my the, point. It didn't happen, but it was pushed for. It was pushed sure. for, but that's my point is that, you know, you yeah. get these agendas coming to push. You know, the, the synod on youth was going to be all, be all about LGBT stuff and there was a giant push for that. And then it fell completely flat because again the you know anyone who does bring um a an agenda or you know an ulterior motive or whatever to a synodal assembly okay you can do that everyone is human everyone is free um but in the end it the, the even even a weight of numbers wanting to do that doesn't ha- is not empowered by the synodal process by an authentically synodal process to make that happen it has to come from the authority figure who convenes it and and that's just a different kettle of fish, I think.
1: Yes, I th- I think that's right. So that's the thing to see: is will the document mostly be about process? Will the document mostly be about a positive affirmation of an experience, or will the document be taken as an opportunity by some, or be framed by an opportunity as some to advance? What I suspect is a is a, is a, is a strongly present but minority agenda of, of undermining veritas splendor and. Um, Uh, undermining or or challenging the catechism in certain ways. And and that's certainly operative and present. But I'll be curious to see the degree to which that gains sort of um, concrete traction or whether or not the focus remains on the sort of effective experience of collegiality. If it does remain on this effective experience of collegiality, I mean, color me skeptical, but I do not think that. I think that there might be a sort of initial flurry of an increase in diocesan synods in other parts of the world. But I do not think that five years from now or 10 years from now, you know, the, the, the synod organizers keep saying that they want the, the challenge is to re articulate the not without eschewing that they, they say this concept without eschewing the hierarchy, hierarchical constitution of the church. The key is to um, re articulate the identity of the church in a key of synodality using a musical motif and in the key of synodality to discuss what it is to be the church. And um, I, I color me pessimistic, but while I think that for the life rest of our lives we will continue to hear people talking periodically about the key of synodality, I do not think it will become the dominant leitmotif of sort of ecclesiological self-identity for most people. I think enduring models like... Um, I find this funny Christ because you you were the of one God, of
0: um, the two of us who was most bullish on the synod and the synodal process. for
1: Because I think the notion of consultation... I've seen my dad before I left. My dad was like, what is this? And I was saying to my dad, look, every year the Archbishop of Denver sits down with his senior staff and maybe his Presbyteral Council and then his Finance Council and thinks about what matters in the life of the church and how he should spend whatever the operating budget is of the the chancery, let's say. it's, For our purposes, let's say it's $15 million, the annual operating budget of the chancery. Every year the the Archbishop and the Presbyteral Council and the College of Consulters and the Finance Council and the senior staff of the Archdiocese weigh in to some extent on how to spend that that $15 million. And I said to my dad, you have a different experience uh, as, a, as a Catholic than does the archbishop or a member of his Presbyteral council, or a member of his finance council. You're involved in very many parish, very many parish ministries. You also have some good uh, theological formation. You're a graduate of the archdiocese and catechetical school and these kinds of things. Um, so don't you think it would be good for a bishop before he decides how to spend the dough that he got from everybody to ask a broader range of people what the pastoral priorities of the church should be so as to be informed as to how to sort of effectively uh, use the resources of the church to reclaim the gospel? Yeah, I think that would be good. Don't you think it would be good for him to ask a great many people sort of how they see what's working and what isn't working or how they see what might work or what their ideas are? Yeah, I think that's good. If that's synodality, I think there should be more of that. But this motif of sort of rethinking the whole of the church and the church's structures in a key of synodality
0: Well, no, but you've, you coined the observation and I, and I, and I think you deserve credit for coining it. And I think it's the correct way to, to view that whole idea of, you know, making synodality the new, first of all, I, when someone, you know, says the word modality, I immediately roll my eyes. I just, it's one of those words that usually means that. If someone says modality, hold on to your wallet. Hold on to your wallet. In this case, you know, get ready to be bored because here comes here comes a lecture. On <laughs> nothing much in particular. Um, but you were the one who who first made the observation that you know we you know the 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 church has particularly in the sort of post-Vatican II era, and I don't think it's because it's after the Council. I think it has much more to do with the sort of uh, interconnectedness of the world, and you know. Um, the the change in our communications climate that you know we the, the the universal church can start to speak with a more common language in a in a very in in a much more accelerated way and it's not always necessarily a good thing sometimes it's a neutral thing sometimes it's a bad thing but what we have seen you know with the advent of sort of mass media and rapid communication and interconnectedness is you know you get buzz phrases entering the bloodstream of the church much more quickly. And so you said, you know, twenty years ago, what we all talked about was the new evangelization, new evangelization, new evangelization. We're new, evangelization, new mm-hmm. evangelization, and and now you know we talk about synodality. And don't forget, dictatorship of relatives. Dictatorship of relatives was the one under the under the Benedict era. Um,
1: all of which I think are good. objective. Each of those things sure. I think is no synodality. Um, I mean, a
0: dictatorship of relatives isn't a good thing. It's a bad thing. But no, bad thing.
1: it's but you know
0: a, 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 as a sort of as a sort of informing um, prism through which to look at the the times and life of the church, it's, it's a good thing to bear in mind. Um, but all of these things, I mean, they, they have a good idea behind them. They have, um, they are an instructive way of thinking about how the church is, um, is behaving and living and, and moving within the world and the times and everything. It's fine. Um, and if people are going to, you know, sort of invoke the principle of synodality as sort of, you know, this, sort of generations bit of jargon then that can be good bad or indifferent um you know that's that's what happens it's just part of it's part of humans it's part of any human society and if you know synodality is a concept and a terminology and a sort of language for talking about things that you know we've always talked about one way or another um it's just now we talk about them in terms of synodality then you know whatever it's it's what it is. Well, there'll be a new thing in the future. There'll be, you know, what, we'll be talking about something else. I think that's
1: right. But I, yeah, I, I think this, the term will be for doing. I mean, yeah, if, if there's more consultation, that's a good thing. But I think there's a degree to which rethinking the church in the key of synodality will be used often by people who don't like the way in which synodality unfolds or the way in which a bishop does something uh, to kind of weaponize, uh, in a weaponized way to say that the bishop is not sufficiently
0: yeah, well, they, people all. will say bishops aren't being sufficiently synodal in the way that they used to say, and still to an extent do say, well, they're not being sufficiently Vatican II. Yeah, you that's know. right. Yeah. yeah.
1: All right, well, I've got to go actually to the press conference now. So there, I have, we'll have a lot more reporting on the synod on synodality. Most of my reporting on the synod on synodality actually is analysis. I'm trying to see what the story, the real stories are. I'm trying to work on a longer... I'm trying to track down some facts and figures that would be a longer, sort of hard news piece. But most of my reporting here is analysis because there's not a lot of hard news coming out of the thing, and because I'm trying to to, to help our readers see all the pieces on the board where they're moving and 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 how they're interacting. Listen, so, uh, that's, so that's
0: important. Of- Do that. I, you know, we, we our 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 goal, our stated way of doing our jobs is if you can read it somewhere else and we have nothing new to add, we don't write it. So don't do it, other yeah. people can write up what happened at the press conference. They are doing it and they're yep. perfectly adequate stenographers. I'm I'm interested in the things that you're hearing and seeing in the conversations that you're having that, you know, don't don't feature there. And if that all comes out as analysis, then I think it's a good thing.
1: Great. Talk to you soon, Ed. Um, I'll be praying for you.
0: I, I could pray for you while I'm on retreat if you'd like, but by all means pray for me while I'd you're retreating. i love that.
1: That would be <laughs> That would be great. As you know, today's episode of The Pillar Podcast is sponsored by the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. The University of Dallas is known for its rigorous undergraduate core curriculum and robust graduate and professional programs in business, ministry, education, and the humanities. With campuses in Texas and Italy, the University of Dallas is committed to an education that forms students intellectually, socially, and spiritually for a life well-lived. For more information, visit udallas.edu slash pillar. Please do it. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. Do us a Favor and visit udallas.edu/slash pillar. The pillar podcast is production of pillar media and Ned JD production. Our executive producer is Kate the Great Oliveira. Uh, I'm your host, JD Flynn. My podcasting partner is Ed Den master himself, Condon. And uh, we'll be back with more information on the P2 project soon.